0: Let's uh, turn in our Bibles this morning to Mark's Gospel. We're going to be in chapter 7, looking at verses 24 to 37. I titled this morning's message, Hope for the Gentiles. Let's pray. Father, I lift up, Lord, Your precious Word. Lord, we've come to Your house, Lord, to worship, We've come to this place, Lord, to to lift up our prayers uh, to You. Lord, we've come to this place, Lord, to partake of communion this morning. We've come to this place to open up Your Word and to draw near to You. And Lord, I just pray that You would pour out Your Spirit upon Your church this morning. That You would do a work in our hearts. That You would stir our hearts afresh. That you would empower us, Lord, afresh with your Holy Spirit, and we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Raise your hand if you're a, a Jew. Any Jew? We got, we got one. We got one. Raise your hand if you're a Gentile. Okay, you're outnumbered what's cool though is that we have our gathering this morning with both Jew and Gentile you're one or the other in scripture you're either a Jew in God's perspective or you're a Gentile and each one of those have promises that God has given I titled this morning hope for the Gentiles because we're looking at this chapter and the first half of this chapter is Jesus dealing with those scribes and Pharisees in the first half. In the second half, we're going to see that God has a plan for the Gentiles. Last week, Jesus taught the multitudes and He also taught His disciples about what is clean and what is unclean. He warned the the multitudes, and and He warned His disciples that what the scribes and the Pharisees were teaching, their doctrines, the commandments, and the traditions that they were putting upon the people, that they were of men and not of God. Jesus, in turn, He warned these scribes and Pharisees on that day. He called them hypocrites. He says, you're, 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 you're acting. You're, you're playing the part of a religious person. And then he quotes to them out of Isaiah 29:13. He says, "This people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me." You see, there's a real danger. There's a danger today in the church. There's a danger in our individual lives. Of just going through the motions. Of giving lip service to God. Coming and doing all the things that Christians do. But our heart is far from Him. And you see, a lot of times we're not sure how far away our heart is. We don't uh, don't always see really where we're at in our heart. And it really requires the Holy Spirit to put that conviction upon our heart to say, you know what, you're not right. You're not in that place that you used to be. Your heart is far from me. You used to seek me in a greater way than you do today. And that's a good indicator that we have lost, that we've lost touch. We've, we've stopped desiring to draw close to God, and our hearts become hard and far from Him. Verse three of chapter seven says, For the Pharisees. And all the Jews, they do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding the traditions of the elders. That's Mark describing his own fellow Jews, the Pharisees, and all the Jews that were practicing Jews, that they fell trap to the teachings and the traditions of the scribes and the Pharisees with all of this special washing before they would eat a meal and i and i shared on that last week even when they came in verse 4 they went into the marketplace and that's where they would be rubbing elbows so to speak with the gentiles that would have been there also they did not eat unless they washed first because they would go and become unclean so to speak by rubbing elbows with the Gentiles, by touching things that had been touched by Gentiles, it rendered them unclean. And they needed to go through this washing and series of washings even in the middle of their meal. In verse 5, it says, then the Pharisees and the scribes on that day, they asked Jesus this question, why do your disciples not walk according to the traditions of the elders, but they eat bread with unwashed hands. Can you imagine what they were thinking? What these scribes and these Pharisees were thinking if they would have been aware of just the chapter before, if they had been aware when Jesus fed the 5,000, and that bread was multiplied and given out through the hands of the disciples to the people, and they were doing it with unwashed hands, doing it in a way that would have, for them, that would have been disturbing to see. And by the way, this thinking, uh, it didn't go away. As a matter of fact, the whole tradition, the whole hand washing, the whole clean and unclean, and all the things that went along with their their doctrines and traditions that they put upon the people, it didn't go away very easily. As a matter of fact, it went on even into the early church, and Paul had to address those issues within the church. Paul, writing to the church at Colossae in chapter 2, verse 8, he said, Beware. Lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit. And he says that it's according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. You see, what we do and what we practice as Christians needs to be biblical and needs to be according to the word of God. It's what we have as, the, as given as the direction of what we practice and don't practice as Christians. Look at your Bibles at verse 14. When Jesus had called the multitude to Himself, He said to them, Hear Me, everyone, and understand. Why would Jesus say that to the multitude? Hear and understand. And the reason why He would is because He knows when He's speaking to a multitude, a crowd of people, that there will be people that will be there that won't hear, that won't understand, that won't get it. That happens today, doesn't it? Hear Me, everyone. And understand. You see, it's one thing to hear. And it's another thing to hear and to also understand what Jesus is about to say. And this is what He says to them in verse 15. There is nothing, you can underline that word, nothing, there is nothing that enters a man from outside which can defile him. But the things which come out of him, those are the things that defile a man. Do you understand that? That's what Jesus was saying to the multitude. It's not the things that come into a man. It's the things that come out of a man that defile him. And then after speaking to the multitude, we're told that He took His disciples away from the crowd. He took them over to a house where He could speak to them on on their own. Look at verse 17. When Jesus had entered a house away from the crowd, His disciples asked Him concerning the parable. So He said to them, Are you thus without understanding also? He's asking His own disciples that question. Do you not understand either? Do you not perceive that whatever enters a man from outside cannot defile him? Because it does not enter his heart, but his stomach, and is eliminated, and thus purifying all foods. Now the authorized King James reads, purging all meats. You see, this had to do with what they were taking in to their stomachs, and Jesus was making it very clear on that day that what it is that renders a man impure unclean it's what comes out of a mouth the mouth it's what comes out of our heart that's the issue not what goes in you see that's the problem with religion it usually religion consists of bad doctrine lots of religions in the world And there's a lot of bad doctrine. Even within professing Christian churches, there's a lot of man-made traditions and do's and don'ts that are put upon people. And they're not not to be found in the Word of God. It only deals typically with the externals of man. It's dealing with just the exterior of man. That's religion. It's it's more concerned with outward appearances of people than it is with the inward purity of a person's heart. You see, God is always most concerned with your heart. Because if He can grab hold of your heart, then your outward exterior will change. Your manners and your behaviors will change. They will follow. But if the heart doesn't change then everything that you do on the outside, you're like an actor. You see, Jesus sees the heart. And the actions that follow that should be produced from a heart that has been changed. Jesus made it very clear to the multitude and His disciples that the heart is the heart of the problem. Food goes in and comes out. We all know how that works. In other words, food is not the issue. It's the heart. That's the problem. It's the heart that defiles a man. It's not the food. Why is it that people would gravitate towards things other than the heart? Because that outward exterior, those outward things that we can do in front of people, they have a very pious look. They have a real religiosity to it. And quite often, man is more concerned with what people see in them than what they can see in the inside of them. And by the way, they can't see the inside of you. They can't see your heart. But God does. We closed last week in verse 21-23 to 23, for from within, out of the heart of men, proceeds evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. And then He says, all these evil things come from within and defile a man. They all have their seed in the heart of man. All of these things. They didn't even have to be put in. They're just there. By our very nature, we're sinful. These things will come out. That's why we need a heart change. It's why we need God to come in and change us from the inside out. Let me give some clear contrast between the religious man and the man who has a relationship with Jesus Christ. Outward appearance an inward heart. Do you see the contrast? Doctrines of man and the doctrines of God. Quite the contrast, isn't it? The commandments of men and the commandments of God. The washing of hands or the washing of the heart. The traditions of man and the Word of God. Defilement of the stomach or defilement of the heart. Unclean hands or unclean hearts. Washing of hands with water or hearts being washed by the Word of God. Honoring God with your lips or honoring God with our hearts. Do you see the contrast between religiosity and somebody that has a real relationship with Jesus Christ? That word heart is found 830 times in the Bible. It's the issue of man's fallen state. His heart. It's also the the central command center, we might say, of your being. Your emotion, your intellect, your will. Everything about you that makes you up as a human being is seated in your heart. We're all called in in Scripture to obey from our heart. And Romans 6.17 tells us that. We're called to believe in your heart. Romans 10.9 We're called to do the will of God from the heart. Ephesians 6.6 We're called to love from a pure heart. 1 Timothy 1.5 We're called to sing and make melody from our heart. Ephesians 5.19 It's all an issue of our heart. It's what God wants to deal with even this morning. He wants to deal with our hearts. He wants to do a work in our hearts. You see, God wants to change the heart. And He's very capable of doing it. He that began a good work with you is going to perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. If you just simply yield and abide and walk close to Christ and say, God, would You change me? Would You change my heart? Do you think God's going to have His way? He will. He's able. He can. He will change you from the inside out. Why would God make such an emphasis upon the heart? Jeremiah 17.9 tells us why. The heart is deceitful above all things. And it's desperately wicked. And who can know it? That's the issue we have. We all have a heart, don't we? We all have that same issue. And those hearts that we have on their own, apart from Christ, They're wicked. It's only Christ coming in and giving us a new heart. Transforming us from the inside out that makes us different from anyone else in the world. The only one who truly knows your heart is God Himself. That's a little intimidating, isn't it? God sees our heart. He knows our heart. Even when we can come across and fool others. James one twenty six says this, If anyone among you thinks he is religious, he does not bro- and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. 1 Peter 3.4 Do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, he's speaking of women here, wearing gold and putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which is very precious in the sight of God. You see, God's not impressed with exteriors. He is impressed with a heart That desires Him and wants to to allow Him to work. Ephesians 6.5 Paul wrote, Bondservants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling. And do it in sincerity of heart as to Christ, not with eye service as men-pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God, From the heart. You see, if your heart wants to do God's will, uh, that's how you're going to please God. If you try to please God by outward exterior without a changing of heart, God doesn't accept any of it. We need to be careful, church. The religion that was in the Lord's Day that was... Just these religious Pharisees, these religious scribes, these religious people of the day. That same religion is with us today. Nothing's changed. People do the same thing. It just comes in different forms. Jesus then decides He's going to depart Capernaum. Right in the midst of all of this going on with these religious leaders, Jesus departs with his disciples from that city or that village of Capernaum, and he begins to make a 40 to 50 mile walk to a new area of ministry in the northwest region, an area called Phoenicia. Jesus was now going to break another taboo, we could say, for the Jews. His disciples were going to have another important truth revealed to them. Keep in mind that everything that Jesus does, everything that He did, had a purpose. And even the timing was perfect. Everything that He did in ministry, every opportunity and occasion that He had with people and and with individuals, was something that He was doing probably in a greater way, in a a broader scope than most people that saw it happening even imagined. Jesus here leaves these religious leaders and then begins to make His walk towards Phoenicia, a Gentile territory. A place where these scribes and the Pharisees would not have wanted to follow. They wouldn't have wanted to follow in His steps and gone into this Gentile territory of Phoenicia. And it just seems to me like this is really part of what Jesus is trying to teach His disciples. That God has a redemptive plan. Not just for His own people Israel, for the Jews, but He has a redemptive plan for the Gentiles also. This was something that His own men were going to have to wrap their head around. It was going to take a long time even for that, for that understanding to fully come. To be fully understood. You see, in, in the Gentiles, this was a, a religion for the Jews. This, this had nothing to do with us Gentiles. And in the Jews' mind, it didn't have anything to do with you Gentiles. This all had to do with what God has done for His people, His chosen people, Israel. Now look at your Bibles at verse 24. From there, speaking about Capernaum where He was, Jesus arose, and He went to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And He entered a house and wanted no one to know it, but He could not be hidden. So, this is probably about a two day journey for Jesus and his disciples to leave Capernaum and to travel this 40 to 50 miles to this city of Tyre. And when Jesus arrives in this city, it says that he entered a house. It doesn't tell us that somebody invited him into a house. It doesn't tell us which house. It doesn't tell us even anyone else was in the house. This may have been a time that Jesus was going to kind of take a a time away with His disciples. And He enters a house. And the house that He entered into with His disciples, He didn't want anyone to know it. But we're told that He could not be hidden. It was hard for Jesus to get away from people. You know, how they ran after Him? When the multitudes ran, He had to feed the 5,000. They came from everywhere, just running around the, the seashore, the Sea of Galilee to get to Him. As Jesus heads towards this Gentile region and these religious leaders, not even willing to follow after Him, when He enters into this house and tries to do it unnoticed, Word, somehow, word got out that Jesus was in the house. That Jesus was there and and this woman comes to the house. She's got a request. She's got a need. She comes to the house. The disciples, they had just witnessed earlier how the scribes and the Pharisees, how how they were when it came even to the marketplace. They didn't even even want and, and didn't even desire to go out into the marketplace unless they came back and went through some kind of a ritual cleansing. The disciples had this mindset themselves. They knew how it was to walk on the other side of the road when a Gentile was coming your way. And you wouldn't even walk on the same side of the road as them. They knew and saw this hand washing and these ritual baths and this ritual cleansing that their fellow Jews would do. But let alone to come into a Gentile territory, to come into a house in a Gentile territory, and then to have a woman who was a gentile arrive at that house this was not the place that a jew would want to be at least a practicing jew it would have meant defilement it would have been having to go through another cleansing and we're told though that jesus that he couldn't be hidden this woman who was 40-50 to miles away in this city of Tyre had heard. Uh, Probably not just her, but many had heard about Jesus. Heard about His miracles. Heard about all these miraculous things that Jesus was doing. And this woman comes to Him with hope. Hope for a Gentile. when you came this morning here to church, you know, did you come here overflowing in your hearts with your love for God and your relationship with Him? Were you, you know, excited in your heart to want to get here and to spend time with your brothers and sisters? To spend time in the house of God? Did you feel like when you walked into church this morning like you were a wellspring? That the Lord was just gushing out of you and the people that see you here at church are man, I want some of that. Is that how you came? Did you come with that kind of a a desire to be close to Jesus? You see, when people come into the house of God, and, and people witness that Jesus is in the house. Do you know how they do that? They do that through you. It's not because we have a building here that Jesus is in the house. He's in the house because He dwells in each one of you that know Him. And when Jesus is in the house, have you ever noticed that you can't deny it? You can't deny it. And the Lord was in that place. Some of the ladies, I think six of our ladies, went away to a conference. They spent a couple of days with hundred I think 150 women that were at this conference. And you know what I heard when they returned? Jesus was in that place. Jesus was there. And in that place, and there was a stirring and there was an excitement that was going on in that house, in that place. And it was all because these women, they just came with hearts and desires. They came as well springs and you know what, and they were pouring out on one another. And the women were blessed. It's so important that when we even come to the house of God, that we come prepared. Yes, this is a place for the sick. Yes, this is a place for the hurting. But it's also a place to come with hearts that are zealous for the things of God. To come together, to gather together as brothers and sisters in Christ to encourage, to lift up, we all have a responsibility in that Jesus was going to show his disciples in this this woman this day that gentiles were no less important than the Jews This was going to be a new revelation Look what it says in verse 25 For a woman whose young daughter had an unclean spirit, heard about Him. This daughter was demon-possessed. She had heard about Jesus. And we're told that she came and she fell at His feet. Get that picture in your mind. A Gentile coming to the one she had heard so much about. And she falls at His feet And we're told that this woman was a Greek. She was a Gentile. She was a Syrophoenician by birth. She was born and raised there in Phoenicia. And then we're also told this of her, that she kept asking Jesus to cast the demon out of her daughter. Here's this Gentile woman. Maybe even feeling like she had no right to approach Jesus is Lord and Master, falling at His feet in respect and in a sense in worship of Him. And she's persistent, isn't she? It says that she kept asking Him. I mean, you know, that just shows to me that this, this woman was welled up with hope and faith. He's the one that could free my daughter. He could truly set her free. My daughter, she's demon-possessed. And Lord, I've heard how You've cast out demons and how You're able. You're my hope. And here she is, falling at His feet. In a sense, begging Jesus to deliver her daughter. You see, when Jesus is in the house, there's hope. There's hope for the hurting. There's hope that are, that are having difficulties in life. You see, if you want to have that hope revived in you, He's a God of all hope. He wants to revive you this morning. He wants to stir you afresh. It didn't stop this woman from asking. Even when Jesus didn't respond right up front. She just kept asking. And you know what? We need to be persistent in that way, don't we? Keep asking the Lord. Be persistent in asking Him. And maybe He didn't have it on His face that everyone could see, but I have to believe that Jesus had a smile in His heart. As this Gentile woman was just, in a sense, begging Him that he might free his daughter from be- demon possession. Her persistence, her faith, her hope in him, I believe, put a smile on his heart and his face. He saw her faith, he saw her persistence. And Jesus, even with all that, even with the faith she was exhibiting, he knew that He needed to test her faith. He didn't test it to to prove to Himself that her faith was real. He knew it. He tested her faith so that she might see that her faith was real. And Jesus tests her faith. This was going to be an encounter in Jesus' ministry that would be a turning point. The disciples who were present there We're going to have a new revelation as this Gentile woman now was in their presence. Look at verse 27. But Jesus said to her, let the children be filled first. For it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. The children that Jesus was speaking of here was the Israelites, the Jews. The little dogs that Jesus was referring to here was the Gentiles. The term that Jesus used here as He was, in a sense, testing this woman's faith, the term that He used with her about the little dogs was a different word And it was said in a different way that it did not offend this woman. You see, there was a derogatory way that the Jews would speak of a Gentile. They were called Gentile dogs. These were the dogs that were outside the home. These were not the friendly pets. And it was in a derogatory way that it was quite often used. But here Jesus not offending her, but in using a different word, refers to the Gentiles as the little dogs. Jesus says to her, let the children be filled first. You see, God's plan of redemption was unfolding to not only to this world, but to His disciples on that day. For it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. Her faith, her persistence is seen in verse 28. She was going to, she wasn't even denying. She didn't even deny what Jesus had just said to her. I think she had an understanding of what Jesus was saying. She knew that these were Jews that she was standing in front of. She knew that she was a Greek, a Gentile. She understood that Jesus was making a distinction between Jew and Gentile. But it didn't offend her. But what she did showed her great faith. Look at verse 28 she answered and she said to Jesus, Yes, Lord. Yet even the little dogs under the table eat from the children's crumbs. How many of you have a pet dog in the house? I've got a Jack Russell. And anytime you're eating, that's where he's at. Right underneath that table looking for anything that might fall off of it. That's the picture that we have here. It's, it's this woman in faith really with her relentless pursuit of asking Jesus and saying to Him, Lord, Yet even the little dogs under the table. They eat from the children's crumbs. If I could just have a little bit. I know I'm undeserving of all, but if I could just have a little bit, just the crumbs, you could touch my daughter. You could heal her. This encounter, it shows us something of the love of our Lord, doesn't it? The compassion that Jesus has towards not just the Jews, but even the Gentiles. You see, God is not a respecter of persons. Aren't you glad? Since we have one Jew with us this morning, and the rest of us are all Gentiles. Aren't you glad? That He's not a respecter of persons? That He loves equally Jew and Gentile that this unfolding revelation that the two would become one was something yet to come in this mystery unveiled to the church. In verse 29, we read, Then Jesus said to her, and these are the words of faith, For this saying, go your way. For this saying, how you just came back and and, and, and responded to me. Even the the little puppies get, get to eat the crumbs that fall from the table. For this saying, for this faith, for this persistence, go your way. The demon has gone out of your daughter. And when she had come to her house, She found the demon gone out and her daughter lying on the bed at a distance. He didn't even need to be there. It Just with her faith, he he delivered this, this young girl from demon possession. Her faith was honored by Jesus. This Gentile woman was also exercising great faith after Jesus tests her and tells her to go her way, I believe that that woman went her way believing. I believe she went away believing that God had done something. Jesus had touched her daughter. Her daughter made well at a distance. Just like that Roman satyrian. Remember that? Another Gentile. I'm not even worthy for you to come under My roof. If you'll just say at your very words, you could say that My servant is healed and he'll he'll be healed. You don't even need to come to My house, Jesus. And Jesus said of that Roman centurion, I have not found such great a faith in all of Israel. A Gentile woman, a Gentile soldier, a man, exemplifying great faith And as he said those words to the crowd and the people, I'm sure that it had to stick into the heart of every Jew that was standing there. I haven't found such great a faith in all of Israel. God's plan of redemption was now unfolding. It's important for us as Christians to note that the mystery... And that's how it's referred to in Scripture. The mystery of both Jew and Gentile coming together as one was something that was an unfolding revelation. It was something that would be at a particular point in church history where the church would come to realize that both Jew and Gentile all have a part, a place in God's plan of redemption. Becoming one was, was an eye-opener for the Jew. It was an eye-opener for the Gentile. Look at verse 31. We see that Jesus, after spending some time, and it doesn't tell us how long, He departs from the region of Tyre and Sidon. There was only about a 26 mile distance between those two cities. Two major cities in Phoenicia. Jesus actually goes north. And He makes His way up to Sidon. And then He begins to leave from there and make His way back to the Sea of Galilee. And He's going to come to this area called Decapolis. We read in verse 31, and again, departing from the region of Tyre and Sidon, He came through the midst of the region of Decapolis to the Sea of Galilee. That was a number of days to make that trek, to come all the way back around and to come over onto the uh, east side of the Sea of Galilee. That was the region of Decapolis. Again, and I don't think it's Uh, without any coincidence that this was Gentile territory. Jesus leaves one Gentile territory and heads directly over to another Gentile territory. First, a Gentile woman has her daughter delivered from demon possession. And then a Gentile man is going to be touched and healed by the Lord. Look at verse 32. When Jesus and His disciples had arrived there in Decapolis, it says in verse 32 that they brought to Jesus one who was deaf and had an impediment in His speech and were told that they begged Him to put His hand on Him. Again, these are Gentiles. Probably Gentiles, maybe all of them. Bringing a friend. Bringing a family member. Bringing this man. And then begging him that he would just touch him. That if if you'll just put your hand on him, he could be made well. We've heard. We've maybe even seen. If you'll just touch him. He could be made well. But the friends, like so often we read, the friends bringing their friends and family to Jesus is what we should be doing. Then Jesus does something that I believe showed His sensitivity in these situations. He didn't always do everything the same, did He? He didn't approach everyone the same way and do it the same way. He had a different approach and a different reasoning for what he did and how he did it. And what he was wanting to do in the way of of a person's faith in the moment. Look at verse 33. He takes this man aside from the multitude. He separates himself from the, the multitude of people that were there. And I think that he didn't want this to be a spectacle. I don't think that, that he, he, Jesus never did anything to make a spectacle of what He was doing when He healed somebody. Unlike people today. Uh, many people today. That would only do something unless people are watching. Unless people are there to observe. And if there's no one around, they don't do anything. But you know what? The, the religious people, they come out of the woodwork when people are watching, don't they? When people can see and all of a sudden now they're just doing their thing. But when no one's watching, well, why do it? Here's Jesus taking the man aside from the multitude. And then He does something different. He puts His fingers in His ears. Interesting. Which I think is a way of Him activating this man's faith. And then... He does something else that we haven't seen Him do. He spits and He touches the man's tongue. I mean, how do you think that would have looked in the religious leader's mind as, as, as Jesus is sticking His fingers into the ears of a Gentile. And He's spitting and touching the man's tongue. I mean, you want to talk about unclean. You want to talk about doing something that would have not went well with His fellow Jews. Here's Jesus in Gentile territory doing something in front of His disciples that would have been a turning point for them. Then we read in verse 34 that Jesus, as He has His fingers in His ear and after He had touched His tongue, he looks up into heaven. Which I believe just showed that his, his power and His source of power came from God Himself. And Jesus sighs with a, with a sigh of maybe some sorrow and compassion that He had upon this man that was, was deaf and couldn't, and, and couldn't speak. And, and that's the heart of our Lord, the compassion that our Lord has. He knows what the ravages of sin has done to a world. He sees what it is in people's lives. Don't ever think that God is not aware and that He's not seeing what's going on in this world and all the the, uh, ailments that people have and the the things that people go through. He sees it all. And we see this part of, of Jesus here. He sighs and He says to Him, he speaks to the man. He says, "Apaphratha, that is, be opened. That's all it took. Be opened. And immediately in verse 35, or in an instant, in that moment, his ears were opened and the impediment of his tongue was loosed. And he spoke plainly. Just like that. Control over it all. Heals the man in an instant, a Gentile man. Then Jesus, after that healing, it says in verse 37 the people were astonished beyond measure. He commands them in verse 36 that they should tell no one. But the more He commanded them, the more they widely proclaimed it. He, and, and quite often the Lord did that. He had enough people wanting to run around Him and follow Him wherever He went. He, he would tell them not to say anything. But they would do it anyway. And what I see here is that these people, they were astonished, or it says beyond measure, What does that look like in the face of a person? Put yourself in that place as Jesus just healed this man. What's interesting is it says that Jesus commanded them that they should tell no one. But they did it anyway. They went out telling everyone. But then He commands us to go out and to preach the Gospel to this world, and much of the church is silent. He's given us the Great Commission to go out with. To open our mouth. To go proclaim it to the world. And many of the people keep silent. Maybe it's that we need to be so overwhelmed with what Christ has done in our life so touched by the Lord, so stirred in our hearts that we can't do anything but tell somebody about Christ. It makes me wonder how many of us will come out on Saturday just trusting God. I can't help but want to go out and tell somebody about the Lord. I'm compelled to want to do that. And you know what? There's no command against you to not speak. He's given you all authority from heaven to go out and open your mouth on His behalf. They were astonished beyond measure, we're told, saying, He has done all things well. He makes both the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. He has done all things well. It makes me think. As the people were, were saying those words, it makes me wonder, can we say that this morning? He has done all things well. Think of your journey that you're on right now. Think of the things in life that are surrounding you now. He has done all things well. Well. Can you say this morning, no matter what your circumstance might be, it is well with my soul. It is well with my soul, Lord. You've allowed it by your hand. You've allowed it. It's well with my soul. Can you say like the psalmist did in Psalm 126, verse 3? The Lord has done great things for us and we are glad. Does that just roll off your lips? The Lord has done great things for us and we're glad. Can you say like Mary in her song in Luke one forty nine? for He who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is His name. He's done great things. It's what should stir our hearts this morning to think about what He has done for you, for your family, in your life, through thick and thin. Listen to what Samuel said to the people of God in 1 Samuel 12.24. He He says, Only fear the Lord and serve him in truth with all of your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. That's what he told the people. Fear the Lord, serve him in truth, do it with all of your heart. And consider what great things He has done for you. I think if we just left with that, it would be enough. We have a great God, we have a great Savior. We have someone that looks over you and looks after you and goes before you and comes up behind you and guards you on the right and left. If you look to Him that way, He's there. And even when we don't look to Him that way, He's there. It's just that you get ripped off of the blessing. You get ripped off of the joy. In the peace, and everything that He wants to give you in the midst of all of it. What great things He has done.